to try to cover uh, a very large section of the passage. Probably uh, we'll get through this chapter in just in just three Sundays. But uh, what we're covering here obviously is uh, bookended with the parable of the sower. And so uh, we're going to try to introduce what parables are for and is, and explain what this has to do with um, with us, with, with anything really. But before we do, let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity that we have to own a copy of your word that you saw fit to speak to your creation and to have it recorded so that we might uh, study them, study the words, we might uh, know what your thoughts are, we might know who you are as you reveal yourself to us in your words, we might know how to obey you and how to uh, serve you as the creator God, as our savior and our king. So we ask this morning that you would give us the ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to believe, and then mouths that would speak the truth to others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we move from chapter 12 into chapter 13, we are moving from the act of rejecting Jesus by the Pharisees and the scribes and the people of this particular generation into a description of that rejection. Uh, In other words, chapter 13 opens with an explanation of how or why people reject Jesus and how or why some people receive Jesus. So in the final verses of chapter 12, where we were last Sunday, we, we looked at people who are not necessarily saved, people who look and act apart but really aren't followers of Jesus. And as Matthew continues his narrative into chapter 13, um, there's one commentator at least identifies the three groups of people that Jesus has been speaking about and to in chapter 12. He identifies them in these uh, in the in the in this first parable here. We have those who are hardened towards the gospel. That's the first soil that we'll look at. Then we have those who are excited about Jesus but uncommitted to him. That would be the second and third soils, and then we have the disciples, those who truly follow Jesus, uh, and that would be the fourth soil. Last week, I, I, <clears throat> if I could summarize the, the whole message into one question, it would be, what would you do with Jesus? What, what do you do with Jesus? And in chapter 13, we begin by seeing several responses, several answers to that question. What do you do with Jesus? Here are four uh, possible answers. Now you'll notice as we're moving forward, as I already already kind of uh, broke the broke the surprise here, that we're looking at a collection of parables. Matthew 13 actually contains seven parables. They're not all of the parables that Jesus has spoken, but there's seven of them here. And since this chapter is all about a parable or or several different ones, it will be helpful for us to make sure that we lay the groundwork and understand what a parable actually is. Very simply put, there's a lot of different definitions out there and a lot of ways to understand them. But very simply, a parable is an earthly story that is used to explain a spiritual truth. Uh, a parable starts with something that is very familiar. For instance, farming. This has been very familiar to them. Later on, he's going to talk about, uh, in another place, he talks about a woman sweeping her house. He talks about a guy finding treasure. He talks about a woman baking bread. He talks about all these different things that are very familiar to people. And from there, he moves towards something that is 
unfamiliar. And oftentimes these parables have some, some twist at the end that wouldn't necessarily be what you think would follow. Uh, and, and so you can pay attention to those types of characteristics as we read through them. If you were to imagine uh, one, one uh, John MacArthur, I think it was uh, this one this time, he, he uh, said, imagine if you lay out a, a truth on a, on, a, on a table, and it's very difficult, maybe hard to understand, but then you take a parable and you lay it beside it, and that parable now helps you to see the connection uh, of the truth, the, 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 the flow of that particular truth, and that's what a parable does. It explains or shows those things that are hidden or unrecognized about the truth. So when we consider a parable, such as this one, we need to determine what the truth is being explained to us and how that truth is being explained to us. Now, one thing we need to be careful about as we, as we look at uh, parables is, that, is making sure that we get the specific truth that the parable is teaching. Uh, we don't want to come to the parable and then say, well, here's what I think, or here's, what it does, here's, here's how it speaks to me. There's a specific reason that this parable is given, and so we want to make sure that overall we, we get that uh, and, and not to really pull some truth out that's not really there. Uh, the parable that we're looking at today is particularly helpful as we read through the end of it because Jesus actually tells us what the parable means, and he's not so uh, generous with the uh, middle parables, but then he'll do it again at the end and explain exactly what these parables um, are, are, are trying, are, he's, what he's, uh, his intentions are with these parables. So let's begin in verse number 1, and we'll just work our way through the text. If you keep your Bible open, or if you use the bulletin, you'll have the, the, uh, the, the, the verses right there, and you can take some notes and follow the outline. Verse number 1 begins, that same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And those words there at the very beginning there, that same day, kind of connects us into chapter 12. So we're talking about the same same instance, same story as, as uh, remember just a minute ago, his mom and brothers were outside the house. Who are my mother and my brothers? And, and uh, these are my mother and my brothers, those who do the will of the Father. That same day, he goes out of the house. Continue reading in verse 2. And great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables. So Jesus leaves the house where he's been teaching in chapter 12. He goes and sits on the beach. Naturally, the crowds follow him, and uh, they come in such great quantities that Jesus has to get into a boat and push out a bit from the shore in order to uh, maybe just have his space or to be able to just uh, speak so that everybody will see and hear him. And so the crowd is standing along the beach now, and Jesus begins to teach them about what he calls the kingdom of heaven. He's mentioned that a few times before, but all of the seven parables in this chapter are going to either specifically say the kingdom of heaven is like, or, or in this case, he won't say that specifically, but he will be speaking about some particular aspect of the kingdom. And this morning, we're, we're considering the parable of the soil. Sometimes we call it the parable of the sower, but really the, the emphasis is, is, is on the soils, the different types of ground that uh, receive seed. So as we see there, a soil a sower went out to, in his field to scatter seed. And it happened there in verse 4, as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came 
and devoured them. This is really a simple story. But in, in those days, it was very common for roads to run either right alongside someone's field or even right through their field. And so as they would scatter seed, it was not uh, unusual at all for some seed to fall on the road, on the dirt path, the hard-packed uh, path. And since it had been packed down by all the foot traffic, these seeds never break down into the soil and are left exposed. And immediately the birds who somehow know when it's planting time, they're, sw- they're circling in the sky above and they see the seeds that don't make it into the ground and they fly down and take these seeds away. Verse 5 continues, uh, that other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. So we're talking about here not necessarily a farmer who didn't get all the rocks out of his field, but a, a rocky underlayment where there is just a thin layer of soil on top of it. It really probably looks like the rest of the ground in the field, but that's just on the surface. Underneath it, there's something quite different. And the seeds that fall into this ground, they quickly sprout up and no doubt bring some hope and excitement to the sower. If, you're, if you plant things, you know that feeling that you get when you see something finally begin to poke up out of the ground that looks alive and green, and, and, and there's hope there. Something good is going to come from this, and that's what happens almost immediately uh, in, this, uh, in this particular section of the field. But then in verse 6, when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. The lack of depth here, the the lack of the depth of soil, prevented the seed from growing a strong root system. And a root system would provide the moisture that it needs, the food nutrients that the plant needs. And so when the sun dries up what little moisture is there in the plant, the plant has no roots to draw additional moisture from beneath, and so it wilts and then withers away. In verse number seven, we see the third thing, the third kind of ground. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. These seeds grew for a little longer, I think, than those that, that were on the rocky soil, but over time, the thorns around them choked the life out of them. According to uh, Luke 8.14, this is Luke's uh, uh, contribution to the parable, he says that these seeds began to show signs of growth, but its fruits did not mature. It says that it did not bring forth a fruit that was perfected or, or fruit that was mature. Finally, we find they see the last type of soil, and that's in verse number 8. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. So we have seeds here that fell on good ground. The soil was deep. It allowed the seeds to grow strong roots. Over time, as the oppressive heat from the sun beat down on it and various weather that, that uh, tries the, the, the plant, tries the, the, the soil, it produced, uh, it withstood all of those things and eventually produced fruit in its season. And we see it various quantities. And the, the emphasis is not necessarily on, you know, which one is better, the 100, the 60, or the 30, but the fact that it, it bore fruit. And then Jesus concludes this parable in verse number 9, the end of this little teaching segment with this familiar phrase, he who has ears, let him hear. And and we've already seen Jesus use this phrase and we've discussed the significance, but I want you to consider how frustrating it must have been for him to end his sermon like that. He told a very short story, a very simple story. There's nothing profound about the story that he told from a human perspective. 
And so I can imagine the people are listening and they're following, okay, I get that. And maybe there's even a farmer off in the distance and they're, they're watching him or maybe they're farmers themselves. And, and, and they're very familiar with this process. He's not saying anything new. There's nothing crazy, uh, out-of-the-box thinking here. He's just telling a story. He's just explaining how things go. And, but then he finishes with this statement. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Because that tells me that what I thought was a simple story, what I thought I understood, now I'm not so sure. What do you mean, he who has ears to hear, let him hear? Like, I, I, I'm hearing this. Did I, I'm getting, I am following, I'm tracking with you, I think. And Jesus, in a way, has, has kind of uh, shifted that, that thinking there, shaken that thinking, that understanding a little bit. Maybe you don't get all that there is to be received in this truth. And that's exactly what the disciples were thinking because they go to Jesus in verse 10 and they're concerned. Maybe they're more concerned for the crowds. I think maybe they're concerned for themselves a little bit because they didn't understand it. Mark and Luke talk about Jesus says, you guys don't understand this? How are you going to understand any parable if you don't understand this one? But they go and, and they say in verse number 10, why do you speak to them in parables? In other words, they're, they're asking Jesus, why don't you explain this to them? You're giving this story, and then you're leaving them hanging, and, you're, and you're, he moves on to the, next, to the next story. He just continues to kind of blast them with these parables about the kingdom of heaven, and they're saying, and I, I think this little passage happened a little bit later, why do you speak to them in parables? Why aren't you explaining this to them? If there's more to the story than what you've said, then why don't you help them understand it? And in Jesus' response, we find that there were, there were basically he has two responses for them. And in that response, we learn something about the way that Jesus uh, uses parables. For you see that teaching parables can be used to further explain a truth, but it can also confuse and frustrate a listener. It can keep him in the dark. And Jesus provides Two responses to the disciples' question. We see first in verse number 11, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. The secrets of the kingdom, and notice that he calls them secrets or mysteries. He says they're given to you, not to them. He's talking to the disciples. There's a you and a them, and the you is the disciples, and the them is everybody else. And, and we're not necessarily talking about the 12 disciples, but those who follow him. And he says, hey, the secrets are for you, not for them. That's why I speak to them in parables. And they have been given to you, and they've not been given to them. So this first reason is divine. It's, it's uh, because God has chosen to do it this way. It, it, it speaks in terms of divine election. This is God's choice. And he goes on to explain in verse 12, For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And notice the passive voice in these verbs. It has been given. It will be given, or it will not be given. And this implies that they received it from someone else. They didn't acquire this or figure out these mysteries and these secrets on their own. This was given to them. And the reason that others don't have this understanding, they don't get it, isn't because they haven't been able to figure it out yet and they just need to think a little bit harder or they need someone to really explain it out to them. It is because it has not been given to them. So this is the divine election of his answer. And Jesus says that the one who has will be given more. And then the one who has 
uh, the one who has more will have it in abundance. But then he says, on the other hand, the one who does not have will lose that little that he does have. So what is the thing that is being given more of or the thing that is being taken away? Well, I think it's the seed. Think about uh, the hard-packed ground and the rocky ground and the thorny ground. They had been given seeds, but eventually, in different ways and in different intervals, they lost the seed. In some cases, it was the birds that took the seed away. In some cases, it was the sun that, that dried up the seed and, 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 and rendered it useless. And in other ways, it was the thorns that choked the seed. But on the other hand, the good ground, was, it received seed and it didn't lose its seed. It produced even more over time. And Jesus is saying to them, guys, this is God's plan. This is why I speak to them in parables. It's God's prerogative. But he gives another reason in verse number 13. He says, this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. Jesus is saying that he teaches in parables because they really don't see or hear or understand the truth. And the truth is, as he further explains, they don't want to. They don't want to know the truth. They don't want to see with their eyes. They don't want to hear with their ears. And speaking in terms of their spiritual hardness, this hard-hearted people, this dull hearts. And Jesus draws from a prophecy in Isaiah 6 in verses 9 and 10. You can read about it. He quotes almost exactly here, but it's Isaiah 6, 9 and 10. And he, and he describes these people of this generation. He says in verse 14, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. In other words, you'll see, but not really. You'll hear, but not really. He goes on in verse 15 and explains why. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Jesus says they have dull hearts, they have closed eyes, and ears that barely hear. And according to Isaiah's prophecy, if you can look through that uh, a little bit this week, you'll see that this is, this is a result of their own doing. Their eyes are closed because they chose to. Their ears are closed because they chose to. And Jesus uses the parables to conceal the truth from these people who have stopped their ears and closed their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears. Why? Because if they saw and heard and understand, they would turn. And if they turn, Jesus would heal them. But they have chosen to reject Jesus. We saw that in previous chapters. It's been the theme. Therefore, the truth remains hidden from them. And as one writer explained, these parables solidify the rejection of those who oppose him. D.A. Carson explains that Matthew wishes simultaneously to affirm that what is taking place in the ministry of Jesus is on the one hand the decreed will of God and the result of biblical prophecy, and on the other hand a terrible rebellion, gross spiritual dullness, and chronic unbelief. So we have these two reasons, these two answers to their question. Why do you speak in parables? Because it's not for them and because they've chosen not to see. But while these people cannot hear or, and will not hear, they will not see, the disciples do. Therefore, more is given to them. Look at verse 16, please. 
But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So why teach in parables? For two reasons. Number one, to reveal truth. And number two, to conceal truth. That's why he teaches in parables, to protect the truth, to give it to those for whom it belongs, and to keep it from those that have no business getting it. It's to reveal it to those who believe, but conceal it from those who do not. Matthew Henry was a, he wrote, it was an 18th century uh, pastor, he's a Puritan and a scholar, and he wrote that Jesus preached parables because thereby the things of God were made more plain and easy to them who were willing to be taught, and at the same time more difficult and obscure to those who were willingly ignorant. And thus, the gospel would be a savor of life to some and of death to others. This is why he speaks in parables. And so in verse 18 to 23, we now have our parable explained. And Jesus graciously explains this one. He doesn't explain them all, and so we want to pay attention to why he says it this way, and this is what he's meaning by that, and actually that will help us to understand some of his other parables. And Matthew records it to our benefit. So remember back in verse number 9, when Jesus finished giving the parable to them, and he finished with the statement, he who has ears, let him hear. Well, now as Jesus begins his explanation to the disciples, he reminds them of that. He says, hear then the parable of the sower. Listen, guys, hear the parable of the sower. If you have ears to hear, then hear. Here's the parable of the sower. And this is where we find the interpretation of the parable as well as its application to us. First, we have the seeds on the road. He says in verse 19, When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the seed sown along the path. And this would be anyone who hears the word of the kingdom but doesn't understand it. You remember back in verse 14, uh, it says, You will indeed hear but never understand. This is those people. And the problem is, that the, is not that the sower didn't do his job well that the sower has no business in farming. He needs to find a new job. The problem is with the soil. The problem is not with the seed. The problem is with the soil. The ground here is too hard, and the seed cannot break through and take, uh, take root and grow, so it remains exposed on the surface. And then like scavenging birds, Satan comes quickly and steals the word that was sown in their heart. And just like that, it fails before it ever got started. This is when the Word of God falls on dull hearts and deaf ears. They will not hear. They've closed their eyes. And they will not believe. And as quickly as the Word is sown, it's snatched away by the evil one. Next, we have the seed that was sown on rocky ground in verse 20. This is the one who hears the Word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Notice this one also hears the word. This one immediately receives it with joy. Quite honestly, that's the desired result from a human perspective. If you're a teacher, you want someone who gets it quickly and is excited about it. As a pastor, when I'm preaching, I like to see those faces out there that, yes, 
That's amazing. To see the light come on. To see someone, yes, rather than to see someone like just sitting back, arms crossed, and just whatever. But here, that's a false success. That's a false uh, assumption here. In this, in this person, this, there's excitement. There's emotion. And there's an instant response. But since it has no depth of soil, it has no strong roots, the growth is only temporary. And as long as conditions are right and the soil remains untested, the ground yields a plant that looks healthy and good. But when persecution comes, and it's not when, or it's not if, it's when. When persecution comes, it tests the ground. Has it allowed the seed to bury itself deep inside, or is it shallow, superficial? When trials come and persecution comes on account of the Word, the surface level commitment to the seed of the Word quickly dies out in these people. Under the heat of a scorching sun, the plant that sprang up so quickly and excitedly now wilts. And since it had never had anything beneath the surface to sustain it and to nourish it, it quickly withers away. And notice that these are external trials. These are tests that come from outside sources and reveal that the plant in the rocky soil will be short-lived and unfruitful. Then we have the seed that is sown among thorns in verse 22. This is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. This person also hears the word, and like the rocky soil, seems to receive the word. I even suspect that it lasts longer than that which was sown on rocky soil, but it too is tested and fails. It's choked by the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of sin. It fails because of internal testing. The rocky soil was, was, was challenged and failed at the external test. Here, this soil fails because of what is inside it. Though the seed was able to get into the soil and there are no rocks to prevent roots from growing, there is a different problem and one just as damaging. There are other things present in the soil. There are competing desires and commitments, affections, loves, and they battle for place and position in this soil. And they steal the nourishment that the seed needs. This seemed to be what happened to a man named Demas in the New Testament. And Paul was, uh, uh, the Apostle Paul was a traveler uh, missionary. Most of you know him, and you probably even recognize the name Demas. But for a while, Demas traveled with Paul. He helped Paul, even in Colossians, I think it is. He, uh, Paul includes Demas' name in there. He's been helping me, and he says hello to all of you in Colossae. Paul is writing to Philemon, and he called Demas a fellow worker. He was, he was a helpful man to, to, to Paul. But when Paul wrote to Timothy from prison, Paul is nearing the end of his life. He's facing execution. And he tells us this in 2 Timothy 4.10, Demas has deserted me. And he explains to us why. Because he loves this present world. Demas has deserted me being in love with this present world. For a time in Demas' life, there was something that looked like spiritual growth. And, and for a while, there was perseverance. And there was faithfulness to stand against the outside pressures and temptations of sin. But his 
seems that he had a heart of thorny ground. And he failed because not because of external pressures, but because of what came on the inside. The thorny ground allows other things to exist alongside the seed. And for a time, it looks like you can have both. And it's dangerous because it looks like it's going to work. I can still hang on to the world and I can have Jesus too. But over time, it becomes very apparent that you cannot have both. The two cannot exist. Something must go. And Jesus says, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the Word and it becomes and it proves unfruitful. But then there is good soil. This is what the farmer is counting on. This is why he is a farmer. This is where the lasting fruit comes from. Verse 23 says, This is the one who hears the Word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and another thirty. This, this kind of ground endures the same challenges that the others do, yet it doesn't fail. This one hears the Word, understands the Word, and yields fruit from the Word in various amounts. Season after season, this ground receives the seed and produces a crop. It withstands the persecution from the sun. It doesn't harbor thorns or other distractions that would choke the seed. This is the one who has ears to hear. This one understands. This one believes the Word, receives the Word, responds to the Word, and is changed by the Word. This is good ground and fruitful ground. And as Jesus said in verse number 12, to it more will be given and it will have an abundance. So the purpose for us today is not to determine what kind of soil everybody is. You don't need to walk around and be like, eh, I think Joe's probably thorny soil. And, you know, Garrett, maybe rocky, I don't know. But, you know, there's, there's hope for good ground. And, but, but, you know, forget about so-and-so because they're hard-packed soil. I mean, nothing's getting through that dense head. Um, that's, not, that's not the application, folks. So uh, cross, that off your, cross that off your to-do list today. It's not to try to turn thorny soil into good soil. It's not to try to convert rocky into good. It's not even to figure out what kind of soil do you want to be. Rather, the purpose for e- is for each of us to consider what type of soil we already are. You can't really change soil. You can't make bad ground good ground. It either is or it isn't. Let me make four observations this morning that we'll finish with and leads to, leads to application of the text here. There's a lot of different applications I guess we could make with this, but this is, this is uh, what we'll finish with. Number one, there are different responses to the Word. Even now, right now, as the Word is going forth, there are different responses to it in this room. We've seen both in Jesus' parable and in His, in his explanation that there are different responses in people's hearts to the Word of God. And as I said before, and most recently in, in chapter 12, there is no neutrality with Jesus. You cannot be neutral when it comes to Jesus. Everyone responds to Jesus. Everyone responds to the truth in one way or another. And though there are many different responses, there is only one proper response. Only one response that leads to fruit. So the question I have for you is how do you respond to Jesus? Because how you respond to Jesus reveals what kind of ground you are. Number two, 
There are different challenges to the soil. The growth of the seed in the soil will be tested. It's going to happen. The birds flew over all the different kinds of grounds. They don't just circle in one section of the field, right? Those of you who have farms and you have crops, you know that, 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 that animals don't limit themselves to the places that, you know, they don't stay in the bad section of the field. They find their way all through it. The sun scorches and persecutes seed of all kinds of ground. Thorns don't only grow in one area. We all deal with the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. We are all tested by it. We are all tempted by it. Even the truth that we present today is every Sunday, but this morning particularly, as we come, as we open the Word of God, we will respond to it in one way, but we will also be tested through this. What you're hearing today, and what you heard last week might have already been tested, but you will be tested. This truth will be tested in your heart. How will you respond to the testing? How will you respond to the sun, to the thorns? Because how you respond to testing reveals what kind of ground you are. Number three, there is a delay in revealing which ground is good, which ground is thorny, and which ground is rocky. If we take just the first month or so after planting, we could look at the thorny ground and say that there is going to be a good crop but we haven't given enough time yet. And over time, we're going to find out what was actually good and what was actually not. Those of you who are farmers, how do you determine what is good soil? By what happens in harvest time, right? If you walk out and you say, this is guaranteed good soil, but nothing comes from it, you're not so sure about that anymore. And if you weren't sure about how good it is, but then you see a bumper crop coming out of that at harvest time, you're going to think, well, maybe that is pretty good soil. But there is a delay here. And notice that there's a progression of growth even in the length of endurance in these four particular pieces of ground that Jesus talks about. Beginning with the hard-packed soil, which never even gets started. Then we have the rocky soil that quickly springs up and quickly withers away. Then we have the thorny ground that is gradually choked. And then we have the good ground that produces lasting fruit and sustained growth. So don't expect... Overnight success in the Christian life. If you're a new, new to following Jesus, don't expect to have it all figured out by next Sunday. If you've been following Jesus for a long time, you know that that's not true. Uh, you, it, it doesn't happen overnight. That means that we can't judge someone's conversion by an emotion that they feel. Because the rocky ground certainly received it with joy. We can't judge our, our, our conversion or another person's conversion based on a single event. Or decision. How do you know you're saved? Because I walked an aisle when I was seven years old. Has anything else given credibility to that decision in your life? Because if absolutely nothing else says, yes, they have Christian behavior, they look like good ground based on fruit, then that decision might have been the result of rocky or thorny ground. That means that we shouldn't be as concerned with growth as much as we are with fruit. Don't measure Christian growth by a single event or decision or even by a few days or a few months. We measure it in years. Because how you respond over time reveals what kind of ground you are. And finally, 
As hearers, we must be concerned with how we hear. This is what it leads to. As a hearer, you are sitting in the room this morning hearing. Hopefully, you are really hearing the Word. Be concerned with how you hear. The difference between the different soils or these different people is not that they one heard and one didn't. It's in how they heard. Everyone who was present that day on the beach heard Jesus' words. But only some really heard. The difference is not in hearing, but in understanding, receiving, persevering, and producing fruit. So, how do you hear the message of Christ? Because how you respond with what you hear reveals what kind of ground you are. The message of Christ is that Jesus came to earth to be the perfect substitute for man's sin. There's nothing that man can do to earn God's favor or win God's favor somehow. But that's what man-made religion tries to do. That's what we've seen already so many times. It establishes systems and rules and order for the best to win and the others to lose. But according to God's Word, nobody earns their way into God's good grace. No one deserves heaven. No one deserves salvation. That's why it matters what you do with Jesus. Because He did it for you. That's what He meant when He quoted from Isaiah. He offers salvation freely to all who believe. And when He quoted from Isaiah, He says that when those see with, who see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand, turn to Him, He heals them. He will save them. So the question is, how will you respond to Jesus? And I'm not saying, has there been, I am saying, has there been a, Maybe you can think of a decision that you made. Yes, that's great. But I'm talking to every person in the room, even those that I would consider good ground. I would look at some of you and say, yes, that's... I mean, I've seen three years worth of fruit as long as I've been here. Some of these people, they challenge me, make me feel bad. But I'm asking you the same question. How do you respond to Jesus? Because how we respond over time reveals what kind of ground we are. How we respond to testing reveals what kind of ground we are. How we respond to Jesus reveals what kind of ground you are. And the only good ground is the ground that receives the Word, understands the Word, believes the Word, and allows the Word to produce good fruit in their lives. How do you respond. Let's pray.